Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are still in our Reclaim series, and this one is Reclaiming Palm Sunday. The question for you to get started is, how has this Lenten season impacted you? Enjoy. We are in this Reclaim series, and we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, reclaiming a bunch of different things. That many of us who are in this room, uh, maybe we started off with a certain set of beliefs or ideals, or this is how Jesus was talked about. But at this point in our lives in Los Angeles in 2018, the story just has to get a little bit bigger. So today we're going to reclaim Palm Sunday. Uh, in the tradition that I grew up in, Palm Sunday was like we're all ready to Easter, like the kids are in the pastels. Like they're running around the sanctuary, which is just a funny word, sanctuary, right? Or the worship center. It's the center of where worship happens, I guess. And they're like running around with the palms and waving around, which I think is good. But in liturgical Christianity, in most of Christianity throughout history, we didn't rush Palm Sunday to get to Easter. That's more of like a modern contemporary thing that we've done. Uh, particularly a thing that's kind of happened in evangelicalism. And there's this weird pattern that the more powerful Christian groups get, the less that they want to talk about suffering, the less that they want to talk about pain, and the less meaningful Lent becomes. Because why do you want any of that when the stock market is rising up and to the right, my friends? Right? So we have to reclaim Palm Sunday in a different way because if you go look at the actual readings of Palm Sunday in the church, it's not only the triumphal entry, which is very misnamed. It's not that triumphal. You know this if you've been to church before. It's not a conquering king coming in on a white horse, right? Jesus comes in on a donkey and they shout Hosanna, but the man is going to crucifixion. The God-man is going to die as a slave to the Roman Empire at the hands of the religious conservative elites. There is no triumph in that. The triumph is to come, but that's not what the Passion Week is about. And if you get to the end of the stories of Holy Week, you eventually get to this narrative that Jesus is now on the cross, that God is now naked and exposed and beaten and bloody in front of the whole world, which is this powerful way of saying that even God stands with us in the greatest shame and suffering any of us could ever experience. So as much as I love some good pastels and some palms being waved, there's a part of it that we need to reclaim. We need to press pause, we need to slow down, and we need to allow the final Sunday of Lent to kind of work itself out. We need to settle into the suffering and into the pain and into the hurt, not because we might be there in this moment. For some of you, you're like puppy dogs on ice cream right now, come on, right? But there's others of you who are in the suffering, who are in the pain, who are in the hurt. And the church calendar teaches us that we stand in solidarity in suffering in those seasons, right? even when we're not in it, so that we can be reminded that maybe one day I will be here too, or maybe one day I've been here before, and so we stand with one another in it. So there are these themes that come up on Palm Sunday that are incredibly important that we don't need to rush through. There's themes of betrayal that Jesus is gonna to go to his final meal betrayed by the very people he loves. 
And again, the worst way to read the Bible is a literal story that happened 2,000 years ago and has nothing to do with your life now. The best way to read the Bible is to take it seriously and say, Jesus did all of that to show you the best way to be human. Because just as much as Jesus was betrayed by the people who loved him most, guess what might happen in your life? You might be betrayed by the people that you love the most, by the very family of origin that you come from, by people at work, by the person that you made those vows to, and the list goes on. And we take a moment to live into the somber reality of that because that's what it means to be human. And Jesus goes there into the betrayal because he's showing us what it means to be human. Jesus doesn't go through the suffering. He doesn't rush through it. Those narratives are a third of the gospels for a reason to say, there's just gonna be a portion of your life that may deal with some suffering and some pains and some wounds. That's not like, hey, let's bum everybody out, man. That's, this is what it means to be human. And so we provide really bad theology at times when we want to talk about Jesus doing everything on the cross and there's a transaction that takes place between Jesus and God so that you will never have to deal with suffering in this world. But that's not the story. The story is not, you'll find your life because I'm going to lose my life. No, Jesus says, you'll find your life when you lose your life. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross not to make a transaction happen between me and God. I'm going to the cross so that you too can participate in the transformation of suffering that I'm going somewhere first so that you all will follow. And then the resurrection story, we get to that so that Jesus can say, even in the worst kind of death, even in the greatest kind of suffering, when all of the world's suffering goes into one place, even God can overcome that. And if this God can hold that pain in the world and do what we don't, which is God takes on all of the violence and then does not release it out. God takes on all the violence and says, the pain ends here. I'm not gonna be more violent on the world. I'm gonna take it all up within me so that I can teach you a better way into new life, into reconciliation, into renewal. Now that's a completely different kind of Palm Sunday. One that we don't rush through one that we don't already turn up the lasers and the sounds and the lights so that we can get to Easter and sing hallelujah, which we want to do that. We're gonna get there, Easter is coming, but not quite yet. And so today we still settle into the reality of our wounds, the reality of suffering, and you're gonna hear stories from our community today with some people who've had a little bit of time and a little bit of perspective to look into their narratives and their stories and where they've come from. Other people who are very much in the midst of their own narratives. But as you hear each of these stories, may it be a reminder to you of where, the, where this um, Holy Week is going. That as Jesus moves towards crucifixion, not quite to resurrection yet, that you have people in your own community who are living out the scriptures, so to speak, of dealing with their own pain and their own wounds and their own suffering. And we get the great gift today of hearing from one another, of not just talking about the Bible as an event that happened somewhere back there, but saying that these scriptures are very alive within us because these scriptures are just simply showing us what it means to be human, and how to be fully connected to God. And the best way to do that is to embrace both the suffering and the pain and the hurt in the world, and also to live into reconciliation and renewal and the joys and the hopes and the resurrection of this thing. So, without further ado, let's start telling some stories. Uh, Sean is gonna come up here first, and he's gonna share with us. Hello, everybody. 
I'm Sean. This feels like a good, a good group already. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a good intro. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. I nailed it. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'll hold this up because we're recording these, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so let's see. Where do I begin? Um, I grew up in Tennessee, um, a place called Chattanooga. It's a really great city. If you've never been there, I highly recommend going. It's a lot of fun. International. Um, what? Internationally. You grew up internationally. No, I didn't. Chattanooga? Tennessee. Oh, is that international yeah. these days? Yeah. I guess I guess. I so. there's just like coasts and it's like land and keep going. <laughs> Landlocked, I guess. Landlocked. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, so went to, uh, grew up in Tennessee. I went to a Catholic school for, uh, until eighth grade. And for me, I kind of had my, I, I refer to it as my AD moment in my life. There's like the BC and the AD. So the, uh, the after death moment for me was um, my uncle when I was, I had, a, I had an uncle that was like really cool. My, my mom's Irish Catholic. So she grew up with seven siblings. Her mom, uh, my grandma's had a vanity license plate that said mom of eight. So that's kind of the, the realm of this family. But um, the youngest sibling was Uncle Chris, um, and he's 10 years younger than the next, uh, the next sibling. So he was like our cool young uncle. He drove a Mitsubishi Eclipse. Everybody wanted to be like him. Um, he was also, he was an, ex he was an exceptional golfer. Um, he played in college. Um, he even played against Tiger Woods. And he had sponsorships and was going to go pro. And then he was diagnosed with ALS. Um, and so if you guys don't know much about ALS, it's a, it's a, degenerative disease that takes a really long time to, to do its work. Um, but it's really painful to watch somebody go through that. Um, and I remember this was like this very life-forming moment because I had a very opinionated Irish Catholic family that had so many things figured out. My grandfather was a deacon. You know, we went to church every Sunday. You tithed enough, good things would happen to you. And then, you know, one of the prized the pride and joys of this family is no longer going to be able to walk, no longer going to play, no longer going to be able to play golf, and is eventually going to die. Um, and so I remember it really creating a very big rift in the family of trying to figure out how do how do we fit in? How does everybody fit into this this new thing where you know eventually my uncle could no longer walk, so he had to go into a wheelchair. He could no longer use his hands, so. He had to have like a, a head-powered wheelchair. He would just move his head back and forth to steer. He lost the ability to speak. He'd have a computer talk for him. Uh, he eventually lost the ability to eat. He would just like drink through a tube. And, and it was like really slow and very painful. And I remember there was a lot of, there was a lot of like, uh, like vicious moments in the family where it was just, people were trying so hard to fix something that just couldn't be fixed, you know? And it was, if you do enough here, that, it'd be f that it would just be fine. And eventually, Chris died, and the same spring, my grandfather died. And so, it was a really big wake-up call for that family, uh, or for my family, and everyone responded very differently, you know? My parents ended up getting separated. Uh, my aunt became a nun, so Aunt Patty was now Sister Veronica Marie. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot of things that kind of stemmed out of that. I, start, I stopped believing. One week I was an atheist, one week I was agnostic, one week I was Jew-Bathlic. I was trying Jewish, Baptist, and Catholic on at the same time. Um, That's actually pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. I just really wanted to say Jew-Bathlic. And you did it. Um, you, you executed it with quality. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I, and I remember I, w I, I was a skater kid. That was, when I left the Catholic school, I like went to public school. Both my brothers grew up in Catholic high school as well, and I was like the cool kid that finally got to ride the bus and go to public school with all the other ragamuffins. Um, and so I started skating because that's who I wanted to be. And, and I would skate, there was a church that would like put up like rails and like boxes and stuff. So we would, me and some buddies would go and skate and we would stay because everybody got free pizza if you went in after. And so we would do the free pizza. And I remember my aunt, it was at a Baptist church. And I remember my aunt, Sister Veronica Marie, um, you know, like having a really stern talk with me because Baptists just don't believe the right way. And it was, it, this was kind of like where everything kind of like went into a, 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 a moment of chaos where I wasn't sure what anything was about, you know? And then um, I got very lucky. I went on tour with a nonprofit, um, traveling the country, speaking all over, got to visit tons of churches, you know, hundreds of churches in the time that I was traveling around. Um, and I was doing a lot of exploring, was trying to figure out a lot of stuff. I was reading Rob Bell books. My friends thought I was a universalist. Mm. Um, Heresy, really. Yeah, you know, mm. and I remember one of like the really like defining moments where I really started to understand myself is right after I finished reading Love Wins, we were in Seattle and I was like all like just Rob Bell high, like everything Rob Bell. And we saw a, uh, we saw a Mars Hill church like, like, oh, Mars Hill is meeting. And so I was like, oh my God, we gotta go. But if you guys have been to the Mars Hill, Seattle, you know that's not no. Rob Bell's church. Um, and it's a very, same, same. very different yeah, yeah, experience, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I really think that that was, as, as weird as that experience was, it really, like, I left that service probably the most impacted because it was, I need to figure out who the hell I am because I don't want to be that, you know? Like, I, I don't want that life. Um, and... And it was a lot of like self-discovery because then I would, when I settled in LA, I would pop from church to church. That's too liturgical. That's too exegetical. Nothing was right, you know? Everything, nothing fed Sean the way I wanted it to. Um, and that was when I realized that I was like going to churches for the wrong reasons. And I took a long break. I even visited New Abbey a few times and I'm pretty sure it was both at different times. You know, it was just not the right place for me. Um, and then, you know, I think, I didn't think a lot about what suffering looked like for a long time. And then I really thought about my uncle and I thought about what that experience was like. And my uncle had the best faith that I can remember, you know, and he, during all of his struggles, made it a point to be a great uncle to me, you know. He would put on movies that he knew that I liked. And it was just like, that was, we watched Fantasia a lot. That was like, that was the movie. Um, you know, and, and I, just re I just remember like, I remember asking, you know, very directly, what do you think's gonna happen? And he just said, I don't know. You know, but he has faith that things are gonna work out the way that they're supposed to. And that was a really hard time. He was being denied medical trials, you know, things that were improving his condition. He was no longer eligible before because he was too old at 26, you know. Um, and so I just remember thinking, you know, that's suffering. That's what that means. And, and I've never had to experience anything like that again, thank God, you know. Um, but those are the, mo I, I reflect on that 
uh, or did reflect on that. And, and I just realized, you know, I, I didn't want a life that was trying to feed me. That wasn't what my uncle was trying to do. And that's what I feel like every person that I grew up disagreeing with about how I felt belief should be, I felt like they were trying to be fed. They were trying to be the ones that were getting something or were trying to gain something instead of just diving in and, and doing something worth doing. And that's why I think I'm so proud and so stoked of New, to be at New Abbey. It's just a church that I really feel like Jesus would be proud of and would, you know, like to come here and hang out, <laughs> you know, and kick it with all of you. And, and so I think that that's really special. And I can't say that about really hardly any other church that I've been to that I feel like Jesus would, would fit in and would really like it here. So I don't know. I hope, hopefully that all made sense. <laughs> I love for every Catholic aunt saying, the Baptists don't do that. There's the other half of us who are like, who grew up in the Baptist family, like, the Catholics. <laughs> they got it all figured out. Uh, Ipo, everybody. All right. You ready? No. Feeling good? Stand. You can stand. You're good. Just in case I need to run. Yep. Um, so my name's Ipo. I'll lean. It's good. You're good. You got this. You got this. Um, so I, uh, <laughs> I completely had something I was going to talk about, and then I woke up this morning and I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> so, because mm -hmm. um, Sabrina said no. So <laughs> she, said, she said that you want to talk about something else that you've been avoiding. So I said, sure. You're right. So um, Kleenex. Yep. <laughs> get, we'll get that one later. You're good. You're good. We'll get it. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so in 2016, I had a really terrible year, and um, my dad passed away. I was 25 years old. My dad passed away January 8th, and for like the rest of the 340-something days after that, it was just a miserable hell I lived through. Um, so context to my dad passing away, he... He suffered through a disease that kicked his butt for 17 years. And um, I knew I was gay for a long time, but never brought it up. And six months before he passed, I came out and because um, I needed to. And um, in those six months before my dad passed away, um, instead of us being able to have loving conversations of how the 25 years went, how a great dad I thought he was, and all these amazing things that I wanted to say to him um, was totally thrown out the window because my dad was scared for my salvation, and he knew he was dying, and if he could just save me before he died, then everything would be okay, and he could die peacefully. But on his deathbed, he did not die peacefully. Um, I watched him suffer and um, cry out that he wouldn't die and um, asked me, to change and asked me to, um, to do something for him that I couldn't do and um, begged me that he would see me in heaven. And he said he didn't know if he would. And um, so that was my six months and he passed and I kind of lived with that and not knowing how to reconcile my dad dying, not knowing how to reconcile my sexuality and it's something I lived through um, very alone in 2016. Um, 
trying to hold those two things that happened and why they happened at the same time and was it the right thing for me to do? And um, was my dad dying? Uh, was he scared of his own salvation? And um, what is everything he believed meant? And like he was a great Bible guy. Was all of this shit? Was Christianity not real? Why was he scared? You know, so I'm just like freaking out all of 2016 in a very godless year, in a very year of loss for me, because I continue to lose a lot of things in my life the rest of that year. Um, Sabrina was going through her, her own personal hell, and we couldn't somehow get it together. And uh, we ended up breaking up for a little while, and everything I loved was just gone in 2016. And I hated that year. And I looked back on that year of like, this year sucked. And like nothing good came out of it. My dad's gone. My entire coming out story was bullshit. And I'm left picking up the pieces alone. Nobody's here. And so that's what I just had in my spirit or my being. That's how I lived my life for a long time. Um, I was very angry and very judgmental and very um, unsettled about Christianity and very upset at my mom also who did not do a good job of being a mom at the time where I needed her to be a mom, um, where she blamed me and told me I disappointed my father and that he died a disappointed dad. And that, you know, it's grief and we can talk about it. <laughs> but there are things that she said that I know that she'll regret, but it's something that was my, was my narrative for that year, something I believed about myself for that year. And so in 2017, came to New Abbey, and um, I was very upset because the first message I heard was this guy, who I have no idea, talking about how we should love Trump supporters. And I was like, where am I? <laughs> I was so mad. I walked Just in. Just another straight white male saying crazy shit in the world, you know? Come on. Yeah. I've grown to love Trump supporters because my mom is a Trump supporter. <clears throat> and I've grown to do that. And... Um, I remember I walked out of church and I cried in the bathroom and Beans came in and was like, hey, <laughs> you okay? <laughs> no, I'm mad at this white guy up here talking about all this stuff. <laughs> and so, but I have not stopped coming back. Um, so 2017 looked like this for me. It looked like um, a lot of rebuilding. It looked like me trying to find out who God was to me and who God is to me me being upset and angry and forgiving Zabrina and forgiving people that were around me that I felt abandoned me. And um, me forgiving my mom, even though she thinks I don't forgive her. And even though we are not on great terms, um, me, per me in my own time forgiving her and me in my own way um, loving her. And I think what I wanna end with is um, something that I took away is when you worded it, um, suffering is a gift. Um, it's, a, it's like such a heavy word, but I think gift in the, in the way for me is that um, nothing really scares me anymore. And I know that's like, that's bullshit. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, uh, I don't know what it is. And, you know, I was talking to Sabrina about it and she's like, yeah, like nothing. I think the worst thing happened to me that could have ever happened to me in 2016. I had a parent die who was disappointed in me, who didn't believe I'd ever get to heaven, who um, 
my mom said terrible things about, like nothing worse. Because if my mom passes away and she believes what she believes and she goes to the grave with what she believes, I made it through my dad's death with a lot of love left in me and a lot of forgiveness left in me and a closer relationship to God than ever before, I will make it through that as well. And I feel like nothing can stop me. I'm not afraid of anything. Roller coasters and spiders. <laughs> <laughs> but in like this other human thing that, you know, you wake up at night and you're scared of death or you wake up at night and think of like, where am I gonna be after this? Or you wake up in life. I literally, I don't know, I'm not afraid anymore. And it's weird. And like I could die today and I'd be okay. Even though I don't have it all together, I know I'll be okay. So that's what that year of suffering has brought me to today. You did it, you made it. There's a moment that you said uh, 2016 felt godless for you. And what's most fascinating about the scriptures is the most godless moment in the Bible is Jesus on the cross. Even Jesus, the God-man, the one who comes from heaven, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that God, most of the time, shows up in the most God-forsaken places. And that's what it means to be human. Scott Kim. Well, I'm looking out at you all and uh, looking at your faces because I want to remember this moment. Um, it's a privilege to be up here. Uh, my name is Scott. Uh, I'm a doctor. I'm uh, 42 years old. And I would tell you all that um, I would want you to think of me as a progressive, fair, um, nice guy. You know, a guy who's always had it together, always looked at people uh, through the lens of God's grace. But that's not entirely true. And, um, you know, when Corey put out the invitation last week um, to share, I think what I recognized is um, if you're going to love me and really understand me, I think you've got to understand something about the burdens I've carried. Um, and so I'm going to share with you something about my journey with race. Uh, my dad died almost a year ago. We're actually going to be flying out to D.C. Uh, next week um, to visit his grave. Um, my dad, uh, like a lot of Korean immigrants, uh, went through a lot uh, with the Korean War and stuff. He came to the United States. It was his first experience of a racially diverse country. Uh, and he reacted to that with what I would describe as uh, equal opportunity racism. Um, he, uh, I grew up in a home where he had a joke or a crack about basically anybody he met or worked with. I think he was actually toughest on his own people. Um, my dad really hated Korean people. He hated Korean people so much he did not teach me Korean. He refused to allow Korean to be spoken in my home. Uh, I'm an only child. I have no connection to any of my family in Korea because of that. Uh, but among other races, my dad was tough on black people. Um, you know, my dad worked uh, at a VA hospital where he saw a lot of black people uh, going through hard times. Uh, as, as a survivor of the Korean War, as someone who lost family, as someone who came to this country with no money, he uh, just could not understand uh, the poverty and the crime that he associated with the black America he experienced. And he brought a lot of that 
rage and that misunderstanding into our home. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think it would have stuck with me so much if, if it hadn't been reinforced over and over and over by the experiences I had in childhood. Um, I watched TV programs where uh, black people were put in handcuffs and uh, taken away by white cops. I experienced a lot of stuff in my community of Tacoma Park, Maryland. Um, some of you may have heard of the um, NBA superstar Steve Francis. Um, he and I went to school together. Uh, and he recently published an article about his experiences being a drug dealer on the corner right outside my high school. Um, you know, I got beaten up a couple times. I got robbed. I had friends who, uh, uh, you know, got, got beaten up real bad. I had friends in my church who lost their dads because the, their dads got shot in their stores. Uh, one of my friends, his dad was pistol whipped uh, by a guy robbing the store and he died of a, uh, of a brain hemorrhage. And the story that all of these moments had in common was that black people were involved. And, um, you know, it, it didn't end there either. Um, in my medical training, I uh, ended up returning to a community close to my home. Uh, was a medical resident at Johns Hopkins in East Baltimore. It's a pretty famous hospital. The reality was um, I was in training with white, Jewish, and Asian doctors, taking care of black people who were hooked on heroin and struggling through life. That was the first 32 years of my life. That was the experience of race I had. And you can't come out of 32 years like that and pretend you weren't affected by it. You know, but I did. You know, we moved out here and I reinvented myself as a progressive, fair-minded, really liberal guy who somehow went through all this and was unaffected by these damaging, unhealthy pictures of race that I experienced. Um, but, you know, I started taking my own journey with the reality of what I am. About three and a half years ago, uh, oddly enough, on the 10th anniversary um, of our, our marriage, uh, Sandy and I were, I remember we're driving to Factory Kitchen, one of our favorite restaurants in, uh, in the Arts District, and Sandy was in her phone and really reacting to the recent news of um, a, a young black man being killed in Ferguson. And um, I have to admit, I had a hard day at work and I didn't want to be talking about stuff in the news. Uh, and the conversation got tense, and then it turned into an argument. I don't know what our server was thinking at the restaurant. <laughs> Very uncomfortable. Um, but I remember at some point, I can't remember if I put it in these words or not, but I said, you weren't there. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. Maybe he was asking for it. You know, um, I'll always regret saying that. I will not only regret saying that, I'll regret the person I was that said that. And you know, I've taken a lot of pride this past decade in covering up that side of me, saying the right thing, being politically correct, being the guy you know, who, who believes in social justice. But there are moments when I get so nasty. I get, I'm so under stress or I'm so angry, I'm just reacting to something, and that nasty thing comes out. And I think what I've realized over this past three and a half years of, of journeying with the rest of this country through some amazing and powerful things is that there's an unconscious bias in me that I have to accept. And, and I know unconscious bias isn't something you grow out of just because you have some Mexican-American or black American friends. The thing I've discovered, you can really love the, the people of color in your life and still when something bad goes wrong or you hear about violence, you can make 
a terrible, terrible assumption about who was involved and why. Um, you know, when I was thinking about what I was going to share today, I thought about Justin, I thought about Ed, I thought about Brittany, I thought about Nicole, I thought about Ari, and I thought about what a privilege it is to be in this community with you all. You didn't know this aspect of me, but I carry this pain. I carry this pain in me and this shame about who I am and, and where I have come from. And I tell you, if I could take a knife and cut that bias and cut that memory out of my heart to be fair and to be loving, I would do it, but I can't. I can't do that. I have to carry this and I have to work against it for the rest of my life. The gift, I think, of what I have experienced is that I know how precious a community like this is, where we're not only diverse and inclusive, but we talk about it. We talk about it because it matters, because it matters to God, because it matters to us, because the work of reconciliation is why we serve God and why we come together and, and worship. And so I wanna thank you guys for, for building this. I am sorry for what I have been. I have great hope in what we will become together. Thank you. I don't care who you are, that was brave. <laughs> One of the powers of Holy Week is this theme of scapegoating. That in Jesus, Jesus knows that as human beings, we're biased. We're inherently tribal. There's something comforting about saying, I have it figured out, and they're clearly wrong. Whoever that is, whoever is across the aisle from me, there's not a single person who's excluded from that reality in this room. But the work of Jesus is not a transaction that happens in which everything magically disappears. You raised your hand, you went forward, you were baptized, and all of your racism and biasness went away. <laughs> no, it's an invitation into the continual process of transformation and to saying no to the parts of us that have held bondage in our life and to continue to grow and to continue to evolve and to continue to transform. So thanks for being bold and being brave. Peter Vanderwall, everybody. Hi everyone, I'm Peter. <laughs> I didn't think that I was gonna be emotional, but there's some residual emotions from all of your shares, so Ready thank you all. <laughs> Corey's got me covered. Yeah. Um, so when Corey asks us to, to share our stories, um, so I guess my story begins with, when I was seven years old, um, I was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome. And, <laughs> Um, so Tourette's, for anybody that doesn't know what that is, it is a, um, a neurological disorder condition that uh, manifests itself in a variety of physical symptoms. Um, for me, it is uh, like physical and oral tics. Um, so I think that first started showing up, um, I think when I was a child, um, and I think uh, in school, kids would make fun of me because I'd make these noises. I'd have these like facial tics. Um, a lot of it is like I describe it as kind of like itches in my body, like any of the areas that are. There's a lot of neurosensors. Um, I'm always kind of fidgeting those muscles. So it's something that has, um, yeah, has always been has always manifested itself. It's always been 
noticeable, I guess, to anybody that spends a lot of time around me. Um, so uh, when I say diagnosed, uh, I was diagnosed by our family doctor. And I think the, the negative message that I started receiving as a kid was kind of unintentionally reinforced by um, my doctor who told me that I should look for replacement tics. So I, I did some things that were kind of noticeable. So I was first instructed that, you know, I should do things that would be less noticeable so that kids wouldn't notice, wouldn't make fun of me. Um, my parents weren't really prepared to help me process through um, what that life would look like. So um, I grew up in a very fundamental Christian family. So as an example of how not to process through with your children and <laughs> things like this. No one, one the, here has experienced yeah. that. So one of the things my mom, I remember saying to me in high school, she said, um, I prayed for God to take your threats from you and give it to me. But God told me that it was your thorn in your side or something, you know, like basically referring to how Paul had this thorn in the side and like, come on, mom. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, you know, and I'm sure I love my mom. I'm sure that she she meant well in that, but just reinforced this this uh, negativity and or negative association with it. So, um, so I really didn't have tools for processing what a life like this or with threats looked like. Um, so over the course of 25 years, really developed a negative identity that threats fit into, um, and. Part of that, my lip is like <laughs> shaking because I'm nervous. But part of that. Um, Part of that identity was just believing that I was bad, uh, I was less than, I was unlovable. Um, all the things that, you know, based on what I heard and didn't have any positive messaging of, of, um, of what it was, I started to internalize. So, um, so that was the first 25 years of my life. Um, over the past several years, I think for a lot of reasons, I've been um, in a season of reclaiming the goodness of that. and. Um, the goodness of my identity. Um, and New Abbey has been a, a gift in that season, in that journey. Um, and just the, the constancy of the message of goodness that, um, that I am worthy, I am lovable, um, I do have value, um, has just been, yeah, <laughs> a really refreshing thing. Um, and I think one of the things that I so appreciate about this community is, I think, and when you asked, you know, when did you realize that uh, your suffering is a gift? Like, you know, it's like, well, when you asked that question, I think maybe I started to realize that. I think that- A week you know, ago. Yeah. yeah. So I, this, this season has definitely been a season of embracing that. And I think I'm still, uh, I'm still in that season of recognizing that this is a gift. And I think- uh, one of the things I so value about this community is I think that um, sharing our stories is uh, we put words to each other's experiences because um, I think suffering, like so many other basic human um, experiences, are they just they include us in this community that is humanity, right? And um, so, like three weeks ago, Brittany's message of the um, the the spilled wine and the old wine cloths just so articulated this experience that I didn't even know um, really that I was having 
uh, we've been going through, this is a whole other story, but uh, this transition to New Abbey has been part of this kind of bigger story of um, leaving another community that has been painful. Um, and just how you described that almost gave permission to, or I hadn't given myself permission to experience sort of the feeling in that that I had. So, um, so I so value this. Uh, and then just a full, sor uh, full circle um, story of this. So at that same service, we had done um, the contemplative exercise. And um, so, and then after the contemplative exercise, we had done kind of coming together as a group again. And uh, for whatever reason, I, I felt compelled that day to share just about how um, taking those moments of recentering has is such a valuable thing for me with Tourette's because it it's so um, it's a it manifests itself you know based on anxiety often um, so when I have those moments it, it gives me a lot of freedom from sort of the the symptoms I suppose of Tourette's and so I shared that and um, after I shared that there was another person in my group sitting next to me who said, you know, like, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I'm in the process of being diagnosed with Tourette's and, um, and I've never met someone else that has it and someone else that's able to talk about it. And, um, and I, I actually haven't met anybody in my life, uh, and had really a positive experience with somebody else that has Tourette's. So, um, that was just, a blessing and such an affirmation of why we do this. And yeah. Peter Vanderlaan. Thank you. There's a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr who says that there's two great paths in this world there's suffering and love. And the longer we're on those paths, we realize it's all just the same thing, it's love. But no religion, no denomination, no creed owns suffering and love. That is a human experience. You don't need to be able to read the Bible, you don't need to be able to speak Greek, it doesn't matter if you were sprinkled or dunked. It's just a human experience. And so we share in one another's suffering, and we share in one another's love. And the more we love, the more we'll suffer. And the more we learn to suffer, the more we'll learn to love. So thanks for your honesty today. Tim, everybody. I swear I'm here to share. I didn't just like creep up on yes. here and just sat. <laughs> Hello, my name is Tim. Um, and it's funny to hear a lot of people talk about Palm Sunday and uh, their experience with how their church deals with Easter because um, I'm Korean and growing up in Korean traditions and Korean churches, they're very, they, they love suffering, but not in like a good way. They they really like teach suffering as this like, oh, so my dad went to a church that I was going to and he's like, I like his message, but they're missing repentance. Like they're missing that one thing that's like, oh, you're so bad. Like, you know, the Hercules, like when they turn into the, oh, we're unworthy, we're unworthy. Like that's... That's kind of how like Korea, Korean churches teaches us about who we are. Um, there's this um, Korean term. I also have notes here. I'm not checking my phone. I have notes because I forget easily. Um, 
Notifications. No, like, on notifications. Yeah. I'm on Instagram. I'm actually living everything right now. No. <laughs> I'm actually currently trending. <laughs> you right are. Yeah. Hashtag Corey. Yeah. Um, it's this term called Han, H-A-N. Um, and the definition, if you look it up on like Wikipedia, it says that to Koreans, Han has a very complex meaning. So when translating the word, the context in which Han is mentioned is important, being that there is really no one definition for it. It's sorrow, regret, grief, resentment, a dull ache of the soul. And that's something that a lot of like, if you, um, some of the pop stars and stuff, they would always talk about their inner Han and all that stuff. And it's like, it's very um, self-deprecating kind of, but then it's also just talking about a lot of this pain that they don't have any words to express. And sometimes they're able to express them by doing certain things. They'll be like cooking and I'm like, I'm expressing my inner Han or whatever it might be. Um, but it's always kind of there. Which is so odd because Korean culture doesn't really share vulnerability very well. Um, if they talk about their suffering, it's after they've triumphed. They've never talk, they don't talk about like, oh, I'm going through something. Um, they'll always talk about, oh, yes, I dealt with this, but God saved me, so I'm all good now. Um, they don't share the process that they go through when they're suffering certain things. It's very much about um, sweeping everything under the rug, don't show your weakness, and you know, you need to present your perfect self. Um, especially, so my parents are Korean missionaries um, to China. Um, and my dad's also a pastor, so growing up in that kind of a household, the expectation to be the pastor's child is also very high. Like, you have to be a certain image. Whenever the, we went out anywhere, we would have to have certain things present. Like, my, if my dad and my sister went out together somewhere um, and they were in a car, he would make her sit in the back seat so people wouldn't think he was having an affair. Um, so things like that was just very kind of a given in our life. Um, so I have a lot of qualifiers in, in just who I am. So I'm Korean, I was born in America, I grew up in China, um, and I don't really quite fit into any of those. So in Korea, people will be like, oh, you're not Korean, because you're, you're not Korean. Um, and in America, I'm Asian. So they're like, you're not really American. And um, in China, I wasn't Chinese. <laughs> um, <laughs> There was like one week where they were like, oh, your Chinese is really good. Oh, wait, no, I can hear an accent. I was like, nah, <laughs> 13 years. Um, and so, um, all right, I have notes here. This is why I have notes. Um, so with all that context of how the, our house was kind of run, um, I was a very depressed and semi-suicidal high schooler. And a lot of those things, you know, you can't really share and then have people um, tell you that it's okay. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and to add to all that, I am also part of the LGBTQ community. And um, my dad's an only son in his family. And I'm his first son. So to be, um, sorry. <laughs> um, to not be able to meet those expectations um, was something that I dealt with alone a lot because I didn't tell my parents until I was, um, well, they found out that I was gay. It wasn't um, my choice. I was going to go to a gay day at Magic Mountain with some church folks and they were like, what is this? Because I found it came out on Facebook and I was like, oh shit, I have to deal with this now. <laughs> So that's how they found out. So those expectations were something that really weighed on me. And um, so 
that was a lot of high school, just trying to figure out where I fall into this place with being a Christian and being gay. Um, and even in that dichotomy, it's really difficult because in the gay community, you are the face of the people that hurt them so dearly. Um, and in the church, you're an abomination. So it's like, where do I fit? Um, and I know a lot of people, you know, a lot of gay Christians, this is pretty much your story. Um, so um, the combination of these things just kept me feeling like I had no worth and I wasn't worth loving. Um, a lot of people, when I talk about the LGBTQ issue, um, they always talk about how, you know, even if they don't personally believe it, their, per their parents always say things like, I don't know why God would allow this to happen if he hates it so much. Um, so it's, um, it's just, it boiled down to the fact that I just kept telling myself that I was unworthy of love. And um, even if, can I have a tissue? I'm like yes, snotting absolutely. all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Um, so even if I don't tell myself that, there is definitely that part of me that still believes it very much. Um, even going into post-college, like really starting to discover uh, my sexuality and taking that break from church and finding people, like being an Asian gay man, like it's not really a very popular choice in the gay community, first off. And if you are, you're the fetish. Um, so I've had multiple people who after, you know, um, spent a couple times together and they're like, oh, I need to go home to my wife and kids. And I had no idea. And I just felt like the, you know, I'm that guy that broke that kind of put that wedge into a relationship that I didn't know about. And whenever those things happen, I would just tell myself, you know, yeah, well, that's what you deserve. Um, like, no one's going to love you. And every time my friends are like, you know, you know, you're, you're great. It's like, but who, are you going to love me? Like, you don't really accept me for who I am. So how can you love me? So it was a lot of, um, that was a lot of the conversations I would have with myself. And there was one time in uh, 2016 when um, it kind of reached a point I was finally kind of getting to a place with this one person that I was like, oh, this could actually turn into something. And he kind of, after six months, was like, eh, you're kind of like a cousin. And I was like, oh, that's comforting to know. And so um, I got home and I, there was a part of me that came out into the mirror that I was like, I didn't recognize. I just started yelling at myself, telling myself all the things that I knew I believed but never verbalized. And I didn't realize was there. And, um, but that realizing that kind of set me on a journey to say, you know, you have a lot of, a lot of issues clearly to work through and um, you don't have to go through them alone. Um, so I started to reach out to a couple of churches to figure out what I can do, even if I started going to a non-affirming church, but they were very loving and uh, they really helped me um, start to reclaim different things about my faith. Um, so this theme of reclaiming has been huge because um, I'm still very triggered by Christians, um, the expectations, the cultures, the implications. It does uh, still trigger at a very visceral level. Um, but I've been at a place where I've been starting to see the similarities of the tradition I was raised in and the God that I was taught to believe, um, but also the differences of um, the God that I now am really growing to know very well um, and learning new things about every day and learning to actually fall in love with God, which was such a concept before, but now it's becoming a little bit more of a real experience um, for the first time. Um, and 
it started to really help me see how I can see myself and actually accept me for who I am. Um, did you guys, how many people saw The Greatest Showman? <laughs> Yay! So the song, This Is Me, there's one line there that says, um, I'm not scared to be seen, I make no apologies. And that was the big line that like punched me in the face and I was just bawling in the seat. Um, but it was the fact that I felt like for so long, everything about me I had to apologize something for. I owed the world everything and I expected nothing back. Um, but that doesn't have to be the case and that's not who God is teaching us to see ourselves as. Um, so, you know, one day I feel like I probably find a way to get to the place where I'm able to accept the grace um, that God is giving me to see myself for who I am and um, hopefully one day be able to slowly extend that grace to the people that I um, am most hurt by. And, um, you know, my family still doesn't really think I'm really a Christian because I am gay, but um, they still say they love me and I think that gives a lot of room for God to work. And so hopefully I'll eventually get there. <laughs> and so thank you guys so much for being a part of um, just being the community that you guys are, because this this kind of a space just doesn't exist almost anywhere else. And um, to have a space where everyone can come up and share about like things that you would never hear in a church, you know, I think it's just so beautiful to see and it's so necessary for us as a community to grow and um, for people who are hurting to start finding some healing. So thank you so much. Christianity, Jesus, is at its best when it's telling good news. Often we tell bad news, or we tell a story that Jesus came somehow to change God's mind about us. But the good news is that Jesus came to change our mind about God. That God's always seen us as sons and daughters, as loved and as pleasing. Uh, and that's a very different gospel. And so Stephanie is going to close this out with a little bit of her story. And then she's also going to lead us in a practice because it's something we've been doing in this Lenten season. I don't want to just have these stories and then off you go. Uh, we're going to create just a little bit more space for you to kind of hold some of these things. Uh, and then we'll end in conversation, but she'll leave all that. You fine with me? Leave yeah, me? You got sure. this? I, okay. I don't mean to like yeah, leave yeah. you alone up here, but Solo. you don't need me. Stephanie, everybody. Well, thank you, Tim, for having notes because I rely on notes. So now I don't feel like the only one. Um, so I'm sure that there are quite a few of you out there who, like me, have had a dream your whole life, one that you don't remember not having for yourself, um, one that uh, held on through childhood even as you outgrew your My Little Pony collection and Cabbage Patch Kids. Anybody? 80s kids out there? <laughs> Um, so for me, that dream was being a mom. Motherhood was the story that I had written for myself ever since I was a little girl. And I remember when my youngest brother was born, I claimed him as my baby. Um, so I took great joy in holding that boy and feeding him and dressing him in little girl clothes because what I really wanted was a sister. And in typical white middle-class American fashion, I thought because I wanted something, it was going to happen. This dream was mine to claim. 
Um, having a kid, having kids was never a question of if, but of how many and when, because obviously I was the one in control. And then infertility happened. And the diagnosis hit me like a punch in the stomach. And this was not how my life was supposed to go. I was so angry and I was confused and I was really, really sad. And I spent two years in a very dark depression, just wrestling with that diagnosis. Eventually healing found me. It was a long and slow process, but the dream to be a mom didn't go away. And so my husband and I became foster to adopt parents. And it was the scariest thing that we have ever done. There was paperwork and interviews and trainings and inspections, and then there was the waiting. Every time the phone would ring, we would both jump up thinking, is this the phone call that was going to change our lives? And eventually the phone call came. A little girl, 16 months old, she needs a home tonight. Will you take her? When Ella came to us, she was terrified. She was confused. She was scared. She came with a few diapers and the clothes on her back. We could see the grief and the fear in her tiny little body. Ella made us parents for the very first time. She changed our lives. It was especially beautiful to see my husband, Billy, in the back be a daddy. He loved Ella fiercely, and she loved him. And we were suddenly this little family that we had hoped to be. But it really wasn't what we hoped, because we weren't really Ella's parents. We were her foster parents. And as her story unfolded, she was reunified with her grandmother. And we were hopeful that this was what was best for her. And we were heartbroken because we had to say goodbye. And most likely, we'll never see her again. And still, I wanted to be a mom. And so this story repeated itself. This time with a three-year-old little boy named Jesse and his two-year-old little sister, Celine. And they came into our lives with all the wild energy and raw joy that toddlers embody. And once again, they were reunified just about a year ago with their grandparents and also their two older sisters who missed them so deeply. And we were hopeful that this was what was best for them. And again, we were so heartbroken because we had to say goodbye. We still have contact with Jesse and Celine, which is a blessing. We actually were supposed to hang out th with them yesterday, um, but life doesn't always go according to plan. As messy and painful and chaotic, as heartbreaking as fostering was for us, it didn't turn out like we wanted it to, it didn't turn out as we expected it to, but Billy and I have no regrets. We got to be sanctuary. We were a loving place for three beautiful children in one of the worst seasons of their lives. And even though it wasn't in the way that I hoped for myself or expected, I was a mom. I was mom to Ella, Jesse, 
and Celine. And I will always be in some strange and messy way that defies definition. Through my own suffering, I've learned what Corey named earlier, that there are only two guarantees in this human experience. And that is suffering. We cannot escape it. And that is love. We cannot escape it. And the greatest of these is love. As everything is falling apart, love holds us together. Love is the truth that pulses at the heart of all things. And one way that I connect to God's love is being in nature. That's where I see it so clearly. As I pay attention to the rhythms of the world around me that sustain life on this planet, I see God's love in action. Resurrection is the pattern of this universe. As stars explode in their dying, new stars and new planets unfurl into being. And this season of spring, we are witnessing resurrection all around us as the seeds that were let go and fall blossom into new life, green shoots of grass on the craggy hillsides and wildflowers blossoming. This is resurrection. From life comes death, comes life again. And God is the source of this life. So as we end our time today, I want to invite you into a simple time of contemplative practice to connect to this rhythm, this rhythm that sustains you, that sustains life all around us, this pattern of resurrection that we can dare to claim through Christ Jesus. So I invite you to gently close your eyes and just draw your attention inward. And just bring your attention to your breath. Your breath, the gift of life that sustains you each moment. Without your trying, without your effort. Notice this rhythm of life within you. Let your inhales be an opening to the love that pulses at the center of all things. And let your exhales be a softening, a surrendering into a bigger story. I invite you to notice the spaces between your inhales and exhales. As you inhale, notice at the top of the breath the fullness. As you exhale, notice at the bottom of your breath the emptiness. Maybe exaggerating those four parts so that your breath is divided into four.
Just as the rhythm of life on this planet is divided into four seasons, we have these four parts to our breath. As you inhale, life awakens within you. Spring. At the top of your breath is a fullness, a ripening. Summer. As you exhale, there is release. There is letting go, like the leaves and the seeds of autumn. And at the bottom of your breath is a space of emptiness, rest, waiting, winter. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. As you exhale, think of a seed falling into the earth. In the emptiness of your lungs, Consider the seed as it waits in the darkness of winter. As you inhale, imagine the seed sprouting into new life, breaking through the earth into the sun. And at the top of your inhale, imagine it growing into fullness spreading out, expanding into the world. Using the four parts of your breath, connect to this image of life from death, from life, this pattern of resurrection that's written in the universe. What are the ways that you have experienced this pattern of resurrection in your own life? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Are there seeds you need to be released in your life right now so that newness might grow on some distant horizon? Place one hand on your heart and one hand on your belly. These are the seats of desire and longing within our bodies. The places where we often feel dreams and hopes, but also suffering and pain in visceral ways. As you inhale, feel your belly and your chest expand into your hands. And imagine God's love breathing into you through your breath. You are held by the love 
that created all things, that wants to be made known in you and through you, that wants you to know above all else, you are beloved. So we had a lot of modeling today of vulnerability, of suffering, and the gift found in suffering. And so we're gonna move into a space where you can share a little bit, if you feel like it, with the people around you. Um, So we have a question for you. How have you seen the pattern of suffering or resurrection in your own life? What does that look like for you? Um, And if you don't feel like sharing, there's no pressure. Or if there's a different question you want to answer, please feel free. This is a space for you to use to be in community with each other as you feel is good to you. So enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.